everybody. Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Justin. This is Brian, and you're at Theology on Tap. I'm so glad that you're here this evening. If this is your first time, welcome. The way this evening works is Brian and I typically talk for about 25 minutes or so about a given topic. I'm excited about the topic tonight. But you'll notice these kind of sheets of paper lying around the room. These are important because at the top, you'll see this QR code. You can text in anonymously any question you have related to what we're talking about or not related at all. So y'all come on in. We've got some and There seats are some seats up here in up the front. front. I did shower this morning, so you're all good. Uh, don't worry. We also have floor space if you want to sit on the lovely oriental rug. Who would want the to sit table? at Brian McGreevy's feet and listen? <laughs> Yeah, so come on in. Uh, the, you'll see these sheets, this top QR code. You can text in anonymously any question. You can see other questions that people ask, and you can like those, and we will do our best to, ask, uh, to answer those questions succinctly and uh, as best as we can. You can also join our email list on this sheet here. If you're not getting our emails, we just send out regular reminders of what's going on uh, in terms of Theology on Tap stuff. And then also we are uh, about to start, we've had a number of people fill out some interest in uh, fellowship opportunities, so game nights or Bible studies or just other things that sound of interest to you. You can, uh, we'd love your feedback. If you're looking for more fellowship opportunities, scan that other QR code there. But really excited about tonight's topic. Yeah. you want to cue us up? Yeah, so um, what we're going to do tonight is to try to talk about three of the most famous books uh, that have been written in the past hundred years that are all, if you remember from high school English, dystopian fantasies. So how many of y'all had to read 1984 when you were in school? All right, that's good. Right, that's how good. many of y'all had to read Brave New World? Okay, good. Okay. And I'm betting we're not going to have anybody that had to read that hideous strength. Did anybody read that? All right. Yes! In all right, college. good. Okay, cool. Uh, but these books are interesting because they were all written a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, and they predicted what was going to happen to the human race. And in many ways, we are watching a lot of what they predicted coming true in our culture right now. And so uh, one of the things we wanted to do was to kind of unpack a little bit about some of what's in these books, why it's really important for us to think about, and then to think about if we are Christians, how do we live, uh, I guess, boldly in the face of all those things? Yeah, what does it look like to live if you're trying to follow Jesus in a world that may, maybe feels a bit dystopian at times? Uh, yeah. Right, so uh, we were talking beforehand, so this could easily be a, an entire year of Theology on Taps just on this subject. Yeah, so we're locking the doors and we're going to keep you all here. <laughs> so you're staying for the whole time. Um, <laughs> but where, I mean, there's just several themes that come to my mind, but where would you like to begin when it comes to... Uh, How about we read we that quotation? Oh, that is really good. Do you have it? Yes. So uh, y'all are probably not familiar with a guy named Neil Postman. I mean, oh, oh yeah, good. we got a, a head nod. Wow. Okay. So I, I think that's a really cool name, um, Neil Postman. But uh, he was a uh, critic, social commentator, all of that, uh, and wrote a really important book back in the 1980s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And this is just a little quotation where he's talking about 
1984 and Brave New World. And this is a little bit long, but hang in there because it's worth it. So he says, and he wrote this in the early 80s, we are keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one left who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a, a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelings, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy which are in Brave New World. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distraction. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. It's so good. If you've never read either of those books, hopefully you get a little glimpse. There's some key themes that are appearing here, right? You've got the role of the state in, in the society that takes place, so totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got technology, right? You've got what does it mean to uh, you know, prosper in some ways. So uh, for Orwell, as he said, Orwell was all about basically in the state oppressing through pain, uh, depriving of books and that sort of thing. With uh, Brave New World and Huxley, you, you see the theme of so much pleasure and happiness that it's just, you don't even have to worry about those things. The infliction is self-inflicted. Yep, yep. Um, any other themes that come to your mind where we can dive in? Well, I would say one of the themes that goes across all three of these books, that hideous strength is less known but that's C.S. Lewis's book that is very much like these, but with a Christian viewpoint. So it's the only one of the three that offers any hope. Yeah. But part of what you see across all of these is the progressive handing over of our humanity to other forces. And if you're a Christian, hand, the handing over of our idea of us being made with dignity and beauty in the image of God and becoming instead cogs in a machine, becoming dehumanized, becoming valued just for our output, 
Um, another theme is the whole eradication of history, eradication of beauty, eradication of objective value uh, in favor of sort of what I would call a dull, gray existence. Yeah. It's amazing because so many of the things that we talk about at Theology on Tap, beauty and uh, how God cares about every aspect of our lives, these really do come up in each of these books. And the impetus behind all this, I just read Brave New World in, in 1984, about a year ago, but um, and it hadn't been maybe 15 years before that when I read it in high school, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I think if this is something that we're facing in some degree in our world today, what things as Christians can, how, should, how then should we live, right, is the question. Yeah. So yeah. at least taking, especially in 1984, the, the propaganda that's being, you know, from the top down and the rewriting of history, right? I, the, one of the things that comes to my mind just from that theme is the importance for Christians to be clear as to what actually truth is, you know, mm -hmm. and, and where do we find truth? Well, we must be saturated not only in the Word of God, which is um, where God reveals himself truly and we can know for certain what, what actually is true reality, but also being around those who are doing it themselves, it, trying to read scripture themselves in Christian community. And you will often in those circles have corroboration, right? You, right. you begin to yeah. see, actually, yes, that's true. And it's not just every man for himself kind of thing. So the role of finding truth is, is really important in all of those books. Yeah, and one of the things that you notice that's common to all three of these books is the idea of either rewriting history or trying to keep people absolutely ignorant of history. And along with that, an overlay of telling people over and over again, you are the smartest, best educated, most sophisticated, most capable generation of people who has ever lived in the history of the world and therefore, you can throw out the entire accumulated experience of the human race because you're just smarter and better than they were. Which, of course, that's probably a pretty dangerous point of view to adopt. Yeah. That was, uh, so in Brave New World, one of the main characters is named John, or Savage is what he's called. And Savage, ironically, is actually the most cultured. He grew up on a, um, a reservation in New Mexico, I think, but what he had was Shakespeare and old, wonderful works of literature. And he read them, and then he's thrust into this dystopian world where nobody has any of these because they don't find them interesting. And it's all just cheap pleasures. And he's like, these things are terrible. You know, and there was that quote, I forgot what it was I sent you, but um, where he basically was like, these things aren't beautiful. Like um, Othello and Shakespeare, all these, he's absolutely captivated by the beauty. and. It, uh, and actually, that was what the state sought to to eliminate right, was the danger, out. because yeah. beauty will ultimately, you know, stir up something in everyone, right? And that it's interesting in both Brave New World and 1984, there's a suppression of, in some sense, real desires, like your true mm -hmm. desires. Like in in 1984, there's definitely a suppression of of what you want, but in Brave New World, it's giving you just a little bit of what you think you are want and suppressing the truer, the higher arts, the, the real sciences. Yes, yeah, and one of the things that's so interesting in both of these is that, really all three books, is the whole way that people are manipulated either by the state 
or by the media. And in 1984, which was the one that I think more people have read than anything else, you might remember that there was the two minutes of hate, two minutes of hate every day where you have to participate in a sort of a rally of hating. And the state and the media tell you who you are to hate during those two minutes. And if you don't visibly show um, hate toward those people, um, then you are reconditioned. And so um, there's that sort of suppression. And then in Brave New World, one of the things that you see is this idea of keeping people perpetually distracted so that they think that they're happy, but they never actually experience joy. Um, they are in a constant state of distraction. And it's really interesting because this was long before Netflix had been invented. Uh, but it's very much sort of the idea of you, somebody just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through Instagram or binge watching on Netflix. And it's kind of okay and it's better than being alone and having nothing to do. But it doesn't fire your soul. And that that is the condition that they want to keep everyone in. Yeah. A couple of things, tying it back to scripture, is that when you think about, okay, um, the you know, banned books and the suppression of being able to find free literature and that sort of thing, uh, maybe this is elite, but I think Jesus invites, uh, he says, um, ask and you shall find, seek and you knock and you, the door will be opened unto you, right? And so... He's always very much pro anyone seeking after truth. Yes, there's and that, inquiry. That's right. Yes. Inquiry and seeking after the truth is always something that Jesus is very much for, right? And and when it comes to pleasure, he's also very much... A, a lot of people have this vision of, of God as kind of like a... He, he just wants you to be in a straitjacket all the time, to not have any pleasure. It's one of the themes uh, that comes out in both of these, uh, as I just mentioned, right? But what... Actually, God is for is your ultimate joy. And similar to Brave New World, that doesn't come by just the, the really easy things. Actually, it's something that has to be cultivated, that takes work and effort to find the true, lasting, deepest joys of your heart. Those are the things that Jesus is actually for. Um, and I think that's a really important way that both those books pick up on a truth that I think Jesus in the Bible yes. said. In all three of these books, they use the word conditioning. Yeah. And part of the way that happens is through what people do in their day-to-day -day jobs. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this, but just think about in your job, if you have ever felt like you were just a cog in a machine, they couldn't care less about you, they just cared about what they could get out of you, and that you were um, deprived of any ability to be an individual, you are just... Um, what you can, what they can get out of you money-wise, and that's all of your worth. And that, opposed to a scriptural view of work, where work has dignity and purpose and uh, self-fulfillment and all of those kinds of things. So that, that whole sort of dehumanizing, lessening what it means to be human, lessening the wonder of what it means to be human and saying humans are just another type of animal. Right. And that we need to live by our instincts, our animal instincts, and that any idea that we're any different from a dog or a wolf or any other sort of animal is just uh, wishful thinking. Right. 
Yeah, and I think technology, too, going with work. So work not only has inherent value, right? This is what the Bible teaches, is that actually the command, even before the world fell under sin, was work was the one of the first commands that God gave, was to uh, tend of the garden and be fruitful and multiply. So do the earth, work the, the ground, work the garden. And I think being made in God's image, all of us are called to actually create in many ways, I mean, we can't create from nothing the way God does, but we're called to, to use our gifts and to, to use what we have to unlock the t- potential of the world, of the created order, that he is whatever kind of sphere of work that we find ourselves in. So there's a, a goodness to it, but in both of these, technology becomes such a thing that just makes work trivial, but also it detaches people from like a physical reality that, that is actually good. They all become very disembodied in many ways. Yeah, and everything that they encounter is something that was created by the state or by other people. They're totally divorced from nature, from the natural environment, um, from the beauty that is out there in nature. And one of the things that I love in that hideous strength, um, which is Lewis's book, is uh, part of what they use for conditioning is this thing that's called the objective room. And when you're put into the objective room, it would be as if you were in this room, but all of the right angles were slightly off. And when you looked at the paintings, things were off. Like if you looked at this painting over here, there might be what looks like a man, but there would be all of this hair coming out of his mouth or fangs coming out of his ears or something like that. And the idea is that you break apart what is actual reality, you break apart what is actual objective beauty, and you try to get people to start thinking that that's normal, that God's created order, because we talked about this two weeks ago um, in our last session, the whole idea that God is a God of order and that order and beauty and things like the Fibonacci numbers and the way that the sun and the stars are ordered, the planets, day and night, the tides, all of that, that there's beauty in that. And so in these dystopian things, what they want to try to do is to alienate you from any of that so that you do not live into that beauty or that experience because if they can divorce you from objective reality, from truth, from beauty, then you are subject to being manipulated. Yeah. It, if you haven't read them, read these books, and I guarantee you, you'll get the sense, an overwhelming sense of, I just want to go and be outside all of a sudden. That was the biggest thing for me. Is like, I got to get it. I, 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 I just want to go. my feet in the ocean. Go on the beach? Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to get out of there. Um, and I think that's by design, right? It's it's trying to show you kind of the, the oppression of these states is to get you completely bought into a disembodied view of reality. And I think one of the things that's interesting is when you look at the way these three books end, uh, Brave New World ends with one of the major characters committing suicide. Um, 1984 ends with the guy who's been trying to figure out what it means to be human, just capitulating to Big Brother and the system and just losing himself. Um, But that hideous strength ends with this couple refinding their love for one another in marriage and their desire to um, build a family together and to help change the world in that way. And the interesting thing is that both 1984 and Brave New World are profoundly pessimistic. 
But in Lewis's book, there is hope. And part of what he says is that if you're a Christian and you're living in a world that is arcing towards this dystopian sort of reality, that there are things that you need to do. The first thing that you need to do is you need to radically engage in Christian fellowship. You need to find people who are like-minded, who believe in the word of God and radically engage in deep fellowship with them. You also need to radically engage with the creation, to be outside, to put your feet in the ocean, to smell the flower, to stop when you're walking around and look at the beauty that surrounds you, to feel the breeze, to look at the stars in the sky. Um, but also you need to be on a quest for truth. And if you are in places where you are being forced to tell lies, then you need to figure out how to remove yourself from those places. But it's a, it's a very interesting book because what he doesn't say is you need to figure out how to deal with these mega forces that are out there. What he says instead is that you need to look at the micro level, that you need to look at love and your relationships with the people that are around you. It's very much like there's a great quotation from Lord of the Rings, surprise, surprise, uh, where uh, Gandalf is talking to Galadriel and he says, Saruman, who's the bad wizard, Saruman believes that it is by great power that the world will be changed. And Gandalf says, but that is not what I have found. I have found that it is by the small deeds of love and kindness by ordinary people that the world is changed. And that's very much what Lewis is saying and that hideous yeah. strength as well. That, you know, so many of us think, I wish I had a job where I could change the world. And we wish we were, you know, working for some amazing organization that was a nonprofit that was changing the world instead of getting it out in this faceless office every day. But the fact of the matter is that the way that we change the world is on that micro level by the relationships that we have with the people that are around us, by focusing on God's word, by focusing on worship, by living into the beauty of the creation, and um, being a stake in the ground for the biblical view of reality and the way that God has made us for joy and not for tedium and distraction. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things both in 1984 and Brave New World is you have the main characters who are struggling with there's no place in this dystopian world for self-denial there's and they're struggling with love they're struggling with i i, I want to experience love mm -hmm. and love requires self-sacrifice self-denial and particularly in in brave new world right yeah. and yeah. it's it's amazing both both of those books i think really the state is the only institution that you should hold to but it's they undermine the family, certainly. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, I was texting you one of the um, things that I, as I was reading, and I saw this on Instagram, but it's a, um, this was Dad and Buried, right? It, let's get married. Yeah, just listen, the name yeah. of the Instagram account is, is Dad and Buried. That's right, that's pretty clever. Like your life is over because you became a father. Let's get married and have kids so instead of using our years of education to change the world, we can be butlers to tiny people who won't stop screaming at us. And I've got some young kids, and if you have children, you know exactly how true kind of that can feel at times, right? 
But the whole premise of a Brave New World, mother and father are like curse words. They are repulsive to the people in society because everyone belongs to everyone else is the constant repeated theme throughout Brave New World. Yep. And so it's repulsive. And the family is gone. The family is gone. And the idea of, of actually, like, the main character, Savage, or Johnny, wants to have uh, this other main character, Lenina, uh, he wants to have sexual relations with her, but she, the, the way they view sex, actually, is purely contractual. In fact, everyone belongs to everyone else, so they talk about it as having somebody, right? It's so contractual, and he's like, I don't want that. I want actual love. And commitment. And commitment, right. which is all pointing to the institution of the family. And that makes no sense to anyone in that book at all. They're like, what? Yeah. And that's where I love how Lewis's book is actually far more hopeful because all of, I mean, you just get little glimpses in both 1984 and Brave New World of like what it should be. And some of the characters catch it and they just, they're too small to really over, overthrow this oppressive power. But what is it about the, the people and um, that hideous strength that enables them ultimately to, you know, the bad guys don't win in that book. Yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting in that hideous strength is that they're they're the people that run the the NICE the N I C E National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. How could you be against something called the NICE? I mean, they sound so the Ministry nice. of Love. In, yes, in exactly. 1984. Um, but they're doing all sorts of horrible things. It's very much like Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, but the people that are on the other side, as they begin to realize what's going on, they band together, they literally move in together and form this intentional community. And the community is not out like trying to do terrorism against the other side. What they focus on is worship. They focus on worship and on loving one another well and on trying to invite other people that feel lost and alienated into their company. And Part of it, as, as they do that, they experience a deeper level of intimacy with each other and with God, and they experience joy as a result of that. So it's, it's very, very different from what you see in the other books. It's so, I mean, that's exactly what the church is meant to be, right? It's a, um, an outpost of a better world. And in some ways, like, even though the world kind of, and we'll end on a hopeful note for our time right now, is even though the world can be seen as becoming more and more dystopian. Uh, it's always been just a passage through that we, we're pilgrims on the way. We're on a journey. We're, we're in exile is what the New Testament talks about. And we're looking forward up to a better land. And so this world is not our ultimate home. And, and along the way, we need one another on this journey to, to band together, to, to remind ourselves that we're not crazy, you know, as we're out in exile in the foreign land. As we hear different stories and different values, it's, we need to be, you know, it's not being gaslit in some ways, that this is, in fact, better and true and good. Yeah, and one of the things that is especially clear in that hideous strength is that we are not made to live in sort of a gray mediocrity that that is not God's desire for us. That God's desire for us is to live lives that are full of meaning and purpose and joy. And that if we are buying into the world system, leaning into this sort of dystopian way of thinking, we need to figure out how to 
break out of that, as Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, um, to break the uh, enchantment of worldliness that uh, is so thick on us and get free to live into the glorious freedom that's in the kingdom of God. Well, that's a, a, probably a good place to pause and then go into see if we have any questions. So who's moderating, I think, for us tonight? All right. And I just want to say, y'all have no idea how restrained Justin and that I was the tip have of the been iceberg. tonight. We yeah. really do have like eight hours of things we would like to talk about, but we controlled ourselves. So <laughs> you're welcome. Or we're reconditioned. <laughs> okay. Um, if everyone will take a minute, go ahead and like the questions. Uh, that you want to like, and then we'll uh, resume in one minute. <laughs> There's one little chair that's up here, too, if somebody wants to. Take it back there, at least. If you don't want to be close to me, just it's go back. The recon it's the reconditioning chair. Oh, and I have, if we need more. I feel like those with kids really resonated with the, the dad and buried quote. It was like very obvious which ones had children. <laughs> okay, so first question. What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence? Does it scare you? Do you think it's ethical? Uh, that is a great question. So artificial intelligence, um, there are some wonderful things about artificial intelligence in that it does enable certain what I would call drone-like work activities um, to be taken over by computers. But the flip side of it is that artificial intelligence, uh, when you let it loose in an environment where we have not yet built an ethical framework for it, um, is kind of frightening to me. Uh, I think that there are things about uh, AI that are, are good um, if they're channeled in the right direction. It's kind of like that old analogy about a fire. A fire, if it broke loose in this room right now, that would be a terrifying and destructive thing. But a fire that's in a fireplace on a cold winter night is a beautiful thing. So I think there is a role for AI, but I think the ethical framework that isn't built yet uh, needs to come first, that we need to press the pause button uh, until we can get a little further down the road ethically before we start letting loose with AI on everything. Yeah, the opportunities too that can be used by those who have power to then you know, use artificial intelligence, or just technology in right, general, to right? Manipulate. To manipulate. Yeah. That's one of the key themes that comes through time and again. It robs some people of good work, the opportunities. I think it also, um, it, it stunts people to, in many ways. Like, if you're just stuck, your attention span is going to be less, uh, you know, the whole chronological snobbery thing that Lewis always talks about. I think that's a real important thing that many people today think, oh, you know, that they just weren't, they were so much smarter back before they had Google or chat GPT and you could just ask something, right? And yeah. now you actually had to retain information and, and know where to find it and, or back then. And today we don't yeah. have that capacity. And I would say the other thing with that is that one of the things that is part of what makes us human is the gift of language. 
and language is something and words clearly really important to God um, Jesus in fact is called the word the incarnate word of God you'll remember way back in Genesis there's the whole thing with the Tower of Babel and the confusion of language and part of what happens with AI is that we we give up that part of our humanity and give it over to a machine uh, rather than focusing on our own ability to use words. So that, that part is troubling as well. How do you reason with individuals whose worldview is entirely focused on economic value as opposed to beauty or goodness? Oh, wow. That's a very good question. Yeah. How do you reason with them? Is that what it is? Yeah. So um, I think that's a great question because one of the things that you, uh, unless you've been under a rock for the past five years, uh, if you've paid any attention to the polls that are going on out there, what you will see is that particularly among people of y'all's generation, uh, the by far the most important thing uh, to people broadly in your generation is economic success. And so part of the reason for that is that there, there's an unspoken assumption there. And the unspoken assumption is that if I make enough money, then I am going to be happy and fulfilled. The problem with that is that it's a lie. And I think part of the way that you begin to reason with people who hold that worldview is to try to expose them to some other points of view. Maybe have them talk to some people who are older, um, who uh, have become successful and realize that money isn't everything. Um, the other thing is to expose them to some of these things that will cause them to encounter beauty and truth, which might be reading a book together and then talking about it, um, those sorts of things. Because I think part of what's difficult is that our education system has been kind of co-opted by this idea because it used to be that people understood the purpose of education was to learn what it meant to live a good life, how to make the world a better place, how to live a life of virtue and purpose. But now more and more people see the purpose of education is to get a job and ideally the best paying job. So there's got to be some dialogue that goes on there. I think I would add to that that it's impossible. Nobody actually lives fully into that that worldview of thinking that like everyone is just an economic value that nobody can possibly live that way. Uh, certainly not and have love, right? I mean, there's certain things in this world that you can't assign dollar value to, right? It, it's just and those are the things that I would try to lean into in conversation with folks. You know, relationships, love, time, all of these things are not. They're, they're not commodified by, by money. They're just inherently good themselves. And I would encourage, yeah, in those conversations, try to, try to bring it to those things. And, and if possible, trying to expose the areas in the person's life where they don't actually operate according to that own value of theirs, that it's just everything's all about money. Nobody lives fully that way, you know? So, um, and doing that lovingly and kindly, but I think that's helpful to see that there's got to be a ceiling to that think, thinking somewhere, right? And so uh, helping them get to see that it would be what I would try to do. 
As an English classical liberal, I'm generally against banning books, but aren't there some that do in fact need to be banned? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, that is a very difficult question. Um, We've got three of them. Yes, yes and no. Um, so I think that the idea of book banning um, in the abstract is sort of hard to talk about because I think that when you think about intellectual freedom and the idea of inquiry and those kinds of things, um, the Christian faith believes that if you are looking for truth, that free inquiry is the way that you get there. And the further that you pursue inquiry, um, you will be led to truth. That being said, there are certainly, and I'm gonna put a nuance on this question that the person may not have intended. There are most certainly books that are not appropriate for people below a certain age. And I think that the there is very much a um, parallel with the conditioning that we see in these dystopian fantasies that is very similar to the what I would call the propagandizing that goes on with some of the children's books that are out there right now that are trying to um, indoctrinate children into a particular point of view about things. So I think those sorts of things um, are not appropriate. And I don't know that I would say I would ban the book, but I would be uncomfortable with the book with certain, below a certain age. Yeah, I'm glad so you brought that. What no, would you say? I mean, I, tried, I would try to say what you just said, I think, in some ways, <laughs> but as always is the case. No, I, I think also recognizing, it, we, we believe in free speech, but even in our society today, we recognize that certain things you just can't say because they're, they're damaging, they're harmful, right? And particularly when you bring up children, you, there is a developmental level that, that can be harmful because you're instilling ideas that, that really are conditioning in some ways. So um, I would err on the side, I think like 99% about, yeah, we want to, again, it's going back to we're not afraid of narratives or things like that. I think it's important as Christians to recognize I'm not afraid of other teachings out there. I think pursuing truth is always a good quest to be on, right? And I think when you examine the evidence, the scriptures and who Jesus Christ is stands up against all of that. Um, and so I'm very much pro, you know, let's look at the whole you know, spectrum out there and weigh what's actually best. And at the same time, I'd want to qualify it just the way you did about uh, with, with children and recognizing that even in the secular world today, you can't just say absolutely anything you want because you, it, it can be really harmful. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I would add to that is that particularly if you're a Christian, you need to learn to be a wise consumer of media, whether it is books or television or movies or whatever it might be, um, because there is so much um, that is being packed into things, particularly now agenda-wise, where um, you just need to be aware of the assumptions that are behind what is out there in various books and films. Sounds like another theology on tap uh, yes. potentially issue. That, yes. Yeah, good one. What's next? What recommendations do you have for someone who's for someone trying to connect with others, but others are constantly busy and can never make time? Yeah. That is a great question. Um, 
I think that there are several things that may be able to help with that. Uh, the first thing I would say, and for most of us, this is our last resort, uh, but I would say if you're a Christian, one of the most important things to do is to pray that God would open the door for relationships with people uh, in your life that would be meaningful. So I think praying that on a daily basis would be important. The second thing would be to pray about who it might be that you might want to be spending time with and then to invite that person to do something specific and to actually plan in advance. I know that's like really hard for a lot of people. It seems like that for a lot of people their social life happens at the last minute with what text comes on over the phone. Um, but to plan in advance and to um, have something to actually do rather than just say, do you want to hang out? Um, I think that sort of thing is helpful. The other thing is to try to find group activities that you might be able to go to together, which might be a theology on tap, it might be a concert, uh, it might be going to a play, whatever. But I think when you are um, showing that you put some intentionality behind it, it makes it more likely that that will happen. And if you start farther in advance, even people that are busy may be able to find the time to do that. I think the first thing I would want to say, uh, is, yeah, I love that about having something to do, especially, is can be a really helpful thing other than just hanging out. But I would want to tell that person, too, don't be discouraged. I think it's mm -hmm. so often you're just like, I just want to give up. No, press on. Keep trying to do it. And don't take it personally, too, because sometimes people just don't have the bandwidth. That's not a personal you know, affront on, on who you are, and that's okay. That's not a statement about, about you at all. But uh, continue. Press on. And... Just keep putting yourself in the places, you know, like this, or like worship on Sundays, wherever you go. And, and also, I would, I would add, don't, don't discard certain people that you're, you're like, well, that, they couldn't be friends for me. I, I would be open to different ages, uh, different interests, and it helps to have the same interests, but also, uh, you know, some of the best friendships that I've had, people who are really different than me. And I, I think that has to start somewhere. And so don't, don't immediately write folks off. If you're looking for friendships, some of those can look very different than uh, what you might have in mind at the outset. Please explain the relationship between the Anglican Communion and the British monarchy. Why was Elizabeth II so weak in terms of reigning in the liberal Church of England? Now, I know everyone is finally on the edge of their seats for this one. <laughs> No, but maybe somebody is. All right, so a brief answer to that. So uh, when the Anglican Church was established way, well, you can argue Anglicanism goes back to the first century in England, but when it officially became distinct from the Roman Catholic Church under the reign of Henry VIII, the sovereign, the monarch of England, was made the head of the church uh, to prevent uh, political interference at the time from the Pope. So that has been sort of the way that it's worked. Um, Elizabeth was um, someone who I think was very definitely a Christian. Uh, and typically what would happen is that she would alternate uh, between appointing someone as head of the church who was conservative and someone who was more liberal. 
but she did not have an actual huge amount of power to control what was going on in the church. That was much more the province of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So um, that became something that became more and more problematic over time. Um, if you want to go deeper on that, Justin, I would be happy to talk to you later. Do you want to add anything? I, I mean, to that? so yeah, I think recognizing that, in some ways, as the British Empire spread, you just had Christianity spread with it all over the world, and so that was rooted not so much in an institutional connection to the Archbishop of Canterbury, like the Pope was to the Roman Catholic Church, but it is rooted in the Christian faith mm -hmm. is what makes Anglicans Anglican, right? And so parts of the Anglican communion have today strayed from that. And that's all I would say is that just because they claim an institutional connection to it, that no, it, our, our unity, who we are as Anglicans is founded as fundamentally just Christians right. where the British In Empire Christ. went. Yes, yes. If that's clear, great. But what, what do we got? A couple more. Do you have a personal example of a time you said no to a figure of authority over handing over your identity? Over handing over? Can you repeat the last part? Do you have a personal example of a time you said no to a figure of authority over handing over your identity? Well, I don't know if this is exactly what the questioner has in mind, but um, many of y'all have heard uh, that in my first career, I was working in uh, management consulting as a lawyer and had a very, very, very lucrative uh, position. And I decided that God was calling me away from that and uh, decided to quit and my employer did not like the fact that I was quitting. And so they tried a number of tactics to stop me from quitting, um, including taking me on some boondoggle trips to Europe and trying to give me more money and all sorts of things. Um, but part of the reason that I felt that God was leading me away from that job was that there was no way that I could do that job, no matter how much they were paying me, and still do and be um, what I thought God was calling me to. So I guess maybe in some ways that's saying no to somebody who's trying to take part of my identity. I don't know if you have any Yeah, I'm getting so hung up. I, I don't know if the whole identity word is what I'm getting hung up on, but I, I view my identity as uh, first and foremost in Christ, and then a uh, husband and a uh, father. So nobody's ever really, uh, no employer has ever come close to saying you have to try to get me to. Since you've been working get, in the church, that's probably good. Or even, you know, I, <laughs> thank goodness, praise the Lord, in some places, I guess, but not here. Um, no, in other jobs, too, outside of the church that I've worked, that was never... Now, there were times where, okay, if this question's about, like, compromising on your convictions, right, then that's a different question. Maybe taking it that way, like, um, there were not so much instances of compromising my morals or convictions, but we did have disagreements in certain positions where I just said, all right, I think this is a time, time for me to leave, and, and that was scary, but kind of like what you were doing. I mean, you're just 
I, I felt like that the Lord was calling me in a different direction. And at the end of the day, uh, that was what I stuck to, was where God, I felt, was calling me. So I hope that's helpful to that question. I don't know. If we totally missed it, yeah. talk to us after. Why are people so opposed to the Union Peer Project? <laughs> Oof. Well, I'll Boy. speak to that because I'm very opposed to the Union Peer Project. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to the public hearing and sat there for hours and hours and hours. They're barking at the wrong tree. Um, right but I, I, I could go on and on about this. But I would say part of the reason that people are so opposed to it is that that is public land. It was land that belonged to the city of Charleston and then was given by the city of Charleston to the state. And so to develop it without regard to the public interest is very problematic. To develop it just to try to get the most money out of the parcel is problematic. But I would also say from a spiritual point of view, um, the whole idea of the, the beauty of the city of Charleston is something that is um, a great gift that we have been given and that those of us who are alive now, it's our job to steward that gift and to allow something to be built that would totally change the entire dynamic uh, of the historic district of the city, I think would obviously be wrong. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Both the Old Testament and New Testament restrict women from being ministers. Why do we overlook that in our discipline as Ang as Anglicans? Okay. Well, yeah, we so, need to clarify some things um, here. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I think there is an assumption in that first sentence that I would not necessarily agree with. Um, there is some very careful parsing of scripture that you would need to do about the role of women in leadership in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, there are a lot of women that are in leadership roles in both places, uh, whether you're looking at Deborah the judge or Priscilla in the New Testament or whoever it might be. Um, if you are talking about ordained leadership as a priest in charge of a congregation, that's a very different nuance of that. Do you want to? Yeah, no, I think that's really important. I think recognizing that we're not talking about just leadership in general. Uh, is that us? It's your hearing aid. Okay. <laughs> well, am I being reconditioned right now? I don't know. Okay. I'm in the objective. What's the room called? The, the objective yeah, room. It's yeah, it's terrible. Uh, so, okay, going back to that question. All right. Um, no, the, recognizing that leadership in general is not something that I, I don't think, I think just those two people you pointed to are two of many examples you could look at in the Old and New Testament. When we get to the issue of women's ordination, either to the, to in our tradition, the Anglican tradition, you have bishops, priests, and deacons, and you have disagreement among Christians as to how to interpret scripture there. But none of them see women as inferior to men in any way, shape, or form. It has nothing to do with capacity. And so one of the things that we've agreed to in the Anglican world is to treat these different positions, what's called dual integrity, that you're, you came to your position looking at Scripture with integrity and that it's not seeking to oppress one or, like women or men or anything like that. And I think that's really important 
to, to state an additional what you said. Yeah. One, one more. One more. How can we incorporate beauty into our day-to-day -day lives? Have you heard of Roger Scruton's thoughts on this topic? Yes, Roger Scruton is awesome. Um, if you want homework from Theology on Tap, um, go to YouTube and find Roger Scruton talking about beauty. Any one of the recordings that's out there will be a blessing to you. Uh, but I think for many of us, part of uh, what we need to do in order to incorporate beauty in our lives uh, would fall into the simple phrase of look up and look around. Uh, so many of us spend all of our time like this. And if it's not this, it's the laptop that we're on um, in our job all the time. And we are surrounded. We, if you live in Charleston, you live in one of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth. And to take the time to look at the beauty that surrounds you, to stop and actually focus on a tree or a flower, to feel the breeze, to take some time to go out and look at the night sky, to regularly make time to go to the beach and put your feet into the ocean, all those kinds of things. I think being intentional about engaging with the natural creation is one of the best ways that you can begin to incorporate beauty. Another way to do that is to listen to beautiful music, um, to look at beautiful art, to read beautiful literature. If you want suggestions, talk to me after. That was a really good answer. But I, yeah, involve all of your senses. Get away from screens. I mean, this is very fitting yeah. with our topic tonight yeah. of Brave New World. And uh, all the dystopian realities involve a lot of screens and um, technology in that sense. So natural world, uh, you know, reading the classic works of literature. And that's another great instance from some of the material that we've talked about tonight. Um, and worship. Worship. Being, being in worship, being outside, cooking a... Involve yourselves with natural materials. Cook, paint, do do things that actually make you you know. Uh, don't don't be afraid to get dirty in some ways, right? And involve yourself in the natural world. And there's there's great beauty to all. And that. there are two movies you can watch: Babette's Feast. If you've never watched that, that's a great movie about this theme. Um, and A Hidden Life is another that's really good on this yeah. theme. Well, thank you guys for coming. It's been a lot of fun. We'll be around. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks, hopefully back in the whiskey room. Though this was actually really nice in here. We've been in here before where it was very dark. Yeah, they used to have like blackout curtains on all the windows, so it felt like a bordello. There was no um, natural light. So, uh, it's, and with the naked lady up there. But, you know, we have, we have come a long way. We did not but put that Thank you all so much for coming. <laughs> <laughs>